Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Anavarapu, the host of this channel. And today I have the pleasure of being in conversation with Dr. Amit Rai, the author of Jagad Time, Ecologies of Everyday Hacking in India, published by Duke University Press in 2019. Amit Rai is a creative read is a reader in creative industries and arts organizing at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, welcome to the show, Amit. So thrilled to be chatting with you today. Hi, thanks for the invitation, Sneha. Looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. So you know, I was um, hoping that we'd get started with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps um, your journey uh, into and through academia. Hmm. Yes. Um, my journey if, into academia, I think, began toward the end of my, my college years where I became, became seriously sort of interested in different forms of social criticism, specifically um, black feminist writings, um, liberation theology. I, I, I minored in theology and uh, majored in, in literature as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of also brought me into the kind of big, bad realm of theory and and sort of try to, you know, situate my own self as a, as a first-generation immigrant to the United States, living in what in that time period, and this was in the 80s, was called the sort of Asian-American formation, and then also to understand myself as a diasporic. All of this went into my engagement with, uh, for instance, I wrote my, my uh, senior thesis on Black women's writing and the question of uh, subjectivity. So all of that sort of enabled me to pose certain questions of power and, and began in me, I began to think very critically about my own sort of um, history and um, the context in which I was trying to study um, and study what I was interested in, very early on in emancipatory movements, uh, emancipatory mm-hmm. social movements. So from there, what happened was I went to India. I, after I, I graduated college, I went, I went, I went back to India uh, to to and uh, to to my hometown, to the town that I was born in, Bhopal, where I had um, you know many relatives and friends and. Um, what I did was I got a job at an English daily. The Dhenak Bhaskar had a uh, English daily at the time. I think it was called the National Mail or something. And um, I got a job, um, sort of doing the education beat in the city. But it was a it was a very volatile time. This is the end of the '80s, the beginning of the '90s. And uh, as you as you I'm sure well know, and your your listeners probably are well aware, this was the time. Of of course the the entrance of India into the the IMF um, sort of world, uh, it was the moment of of liberalization of the economy. Uh, it was also the moment of the release of the Mundal Commission report uh, around reservations for uh, for Dalits, and um, it was also of course the time of the ratcheting up of uh, Hindutva nationalism. Uh, and that, and I was in India. I was in Bhopal, uh, in the city, on a scooter uh, on on the day of the first storming of the mosque of the Babri Masjid. All of that shaped what I thought was possible and what I thought was necessary politically, uh, in terms of, uh, for instance, what needed to be learned. What do, what do I need to learn? What do I need to know uh, to be able to contribute? Uh, to to collective formations of resistance and 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 also you know how one can think about India's project of secularism uh, and and whence uh, and wither secularism uh, in India. So all of those things um, were swirling around in my brain, and I applied to go to graduate school. And I went to I went to uh, graduate school in Northern California, and I got a degree. Uh, at Stanford in in a program called Modern Thought and Literature, which was an interdisciplinary program, and that strong emphasis was on on really um, understanding, uh, you know, different inter uh, different disciplinary ways of knowing, and why mm-hmm. in this discipline a question was was being posed in this way, and why in another discipline 
question be being posed in a different way. And so I, I focused on what I guess one could call a sort of broadly post-colonial cultural studies and anthropology. Um, those were sort of my two areas of focus uh, in my graduate work. And I, uh, you know, was focusing on 19th and 20th century literatures in South Asia and in uh, Britain. So looking specifically at colonial relations of culture, um, I was looking at the history of cultural anthropology and, and the formation of the anthropological gaze, how the anthropological framework came about in, in fact, uh, through the colonial encounter itself. Um, I became just sort of, I don't know, I, one could say fascinated, I could also say mired in a certain kind of post-structuralist um, philosophy, post-structuralism, and the big names, of course, people will know, but uh, the ones that that particularly kind of mesmerized me at the time was were people like uh, Foucault and Derrida, um, and 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 you know Guy Three Spivak's sort of bringing um, Derrida into the English speaking world, um, and then more more generally the relationship of of intersectionality at the time. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's work on inter- intersectionality was very important in critical race studies, um, and and how that was also uh, an important way of thinking about questions of solidarity. Um, and so the sort of uh, black feminist analysis of, uh, of different forms of power and, and how um, the black woman's body is at the intersection of many different dynamics uh, and many different machines of capture, one might say uh, that mm-hmm. all of that, was very important to my understanding of not only research, but also pedagogy, what, what one could, you know, well, what one could affirm in the classroom. And, and we were talking here, you know, about classrooms that were highly policed. Um, I was Mm -hmm. teaching um, as an under, as a, um, you know, second, third year graduate student at Stanford. And it was a very, very fraught, Campus and at those in those days back in the nineties the the discussion was uh, well who's PC is, are you right. PC is anyone PC what does PC mean and those those kinds of questions of um, sort mm-hmm. of and the sharpening of those questions of political enunciation and the position in which one can speak from and who can one represent and what is represent what is representation what does it mean to represent another's voice and so on and so forth well those questions were being fought over in the classroom and in you know the the culture wars that had uh, hotted up in the in the 80s and had really sort of exploded in the 90s that was also very much uh, a part of my intellectual formation. Um, And I was, I was also trained of course in post-colonial criticism. And, and for me, post-colonial criticism was um, certainly a way of uh, understanding these uh, geopolitical dimensions of everyday life and understanding of course, the, the ongoing legacies of, of colonial domination. but post-colonial criticism was also a place for me of thinking about solidarities. Uh, again, I, and, and I, I sort of foreground that um, that that issue for me, the question of solidarity, because it has been a continuous one. Um, and I will talk mm-hmm. about that toward the end, I suppose. Um, I published several articles as a graduate student, and uh, and you know this was at a time where. Um, but post-colonial criticism was was very popular in in academic presses. So, um, I, I say that as both a problem and and a kind of sort of explanation of, of what was going on. But uh, I, pu- I I published uh, articles on, for instance, uh, images of Elvis in Hindi films, and so I looked at uh, Shami Kapoor through the framework of uh, Homi Baba's notion of mimicry, colonial mimicry, and then um, uh, doing readings of, and really representational readings of, uh, of particular um, films focusing on the question of 
the woman, the subaltern woman and, uh, and her quote unquote voice. So those are the kinds of, that's how I sort of began sort of into media studies, began into sort of, um, began my journey into, um, cultural criticism. Um, I got, uh, I, I, what I think was probably, you know, a really good job for that year in 1995, I got the, a full-time position at the new school for social research. And of course, you know, the social, the, the new school for social research is a storied place. It has a very radical history and, um, it was a place where different kinds of radical thought was, was still possible. And I was teaching at the undergraduate, um, college there and, um, was, was abled and enabled uh, and supported by, by, um, you know, colleagues to do experimental things in the classroom and, and teach experimental, uh, topics. So that was really important as my first job, uh, in, in academia. Um, and then in 2004, I moved, uh, to Florida State University where I was teaching similar things to the new school. And, um, well, I mean, Florida is Florida, and you you see how they voted today. But um, you know, I mean, it was it was, it was Florida where I was was Tallahassee, which was really southern Georgia, and uh, you know, I, fifteen minutes in either either direction of Tallahassee landed you in Ku Klux Klan country. So that that kind of uh, environment, that kind of white supremacist environment, also then gave me further kind of concrete. Um, sort of context through which I could understand um, these different uh, interests that I had, I had developed, I had accrued. Um, in 2010, well, in 2009, I got a senior fellowship uh, with the Fulbright Foundation mm-hmm. and was able to go to India to do a year-long study on uh, the question of gender and mobile phones. And that was really the sort of one of the important places where um, I began thinking about Jugar. Um, and in, and so, so that, that happened in 2009. And then in 2010, while really I was still on uh, my, my fellowship, I got another job. And at this time, I got a job, something which was something completely different and completely out of my field in some ways. But I got a job in a business school. I got a job in a left-leaning business school. That was um, uh, sort of being put together by um, two amazing uh, academics, uh, uh, Professor Jerry Hanlon, um, who does work on organizational behavior, and the other person was Stefano Harney. And Stefano Harney, um, I knew from New York, and and he, you know, he and I um, shared some certain circles together, but I'd never met him, and so. um, And when I landed up here, I became clear that Harney and I had you know, very specific kinds of intersecting, um, political and, um, and, and theoretical interests. And of course, Stefano is known today as one of, as the co-writer of, uh, co-author of, uh, The Undercommons, one of the, one of the books that, uh, that he and Fred Moten have written together. And, um, you know, Stefano also reintroduced me in some ways to, um, a different aspect of the black radical tradition. Um, at the time when I got here at, uh, Queen Mary, this was uh, already a place that had a strong post-autonomous presence. So there was a lot of, uh, Italian autonomists here, uh, post-workerists, one might say. And so the, the posing of the question of the political in Marxist political economy through Italian Marxism, uh, was very important to me and has and has remained very important to me over the past 10 years. Uh, people like Ariana Bove, Valeria Graziano, Matteo Pasquinelli, Camille Barbagallo, and uh, Matteo Mandarini, all these people were very, very formative uh, at, at a time where a lot of things for me were still forming. So um, today I teach in the fields of ethics and business, critical marketing studies, transnational creative industry studies. I also uh, convene a uh, seminar at the Dutch Art Institute in the Roaming Academy there. Um, and the seminar is on the relationship of post-colonial theory to the black radical tradition. Wow. That's yeah. really interesting. Uh, thank you for taking us down this route as it, it's very inspiring to see someone do such different and interesting things. And, you know, um, yeah. 
Well, I was also curious, you did just mention it, but perhaps you could uh, give us a bit of a deep dive into how the research for this particular project developed and um, yeah, like how this book was conceived. Yeah. So my so I've written three books and uh, the second, my first book was on the 18th and 19th century around questions of humanitarian humanitarianism and the the emergence of humanitarianism and the question of of race and colonialism that was called rule of sympathy my second book was called untimely bollywood and it was based mm-hmm. on an anthropological project of understanding the shifts and changes in film going and media consumption in india at the moment when india was moving from the single screen talkie to mm-hmm. the the multiplex and i call it the multiplex for for advised you know advisedly in other words today um almost all malls that are built in india have a cinema have right. uh, have some capacity for for uh cinema going so uh the the the, the close linkage between consumption neoliberal consumption mm-hmm. and and uh, a certain form of uh, cinema going and media consumption has been, uh, you know, closely tied together. Certainly, in in the, I mean, this this has been happening in the, in America since the fifties. But uh, as neoliberalism uh, took off in India in the nineties and two thousands, this uh, this connection became almost. Uh, second nature it became almost like a natural connection so i wanted to explore what was happening to cinema going to media consumption at this moment and i i spent a year at lily talkies in bobal um and would just basically go in every day to you know talk to staff hang out with uh, and 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 interview moviegoers and, and things like that so that that um, uh, sort of was what enabled me to write Untimely Bollywood. But in that in that moment of writing Untimely Bollywood, I also realized that there's something going on with technology, something that was both uniquely Indian, but also something that was shared in, in, and, and, and part of a global shift. So this is, for me, also something that is a tension in my work. And that is... You know, uh, are there styles of cinema going? First day, first show, for instance, right? First day, first show is 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 a thing in India, uh, and well, it used to be at least. And uh, these that that sort of ability to claim I've done first day, first show. This is there's something very, very, um, I would say, Indian about it. And and I am, and when I say Indian, I'm also wary that I'm homogenizing a very, very heterogeneous country. But uh, just to, to put it in those very general terms right now. Um, and then the question of what was happening with digital technologies. So, mm-hmm. so that connection between a certain kind of style of uh, a certain kind of, you know, a lot of it is localized, but a certain kind of style that mean many people in India from other parts of India can recognize oh, that's, that's a person enthralled. In, in a movie or something like that. Well, that kind of culture of, of movie going was changing um, in dynamic relationship with the new digital technologies. That dynamic feedback, right? So there's mm-hmm. a feedback between a changing technological infrastructure and a, a, a you know, differently changing and differently rhythmed um, set of habituations. So the relationship mm-hmm. of habit to technology was something that was really posed in sharp terms for me when I was doing the research for Untimely Bollywood. And then that became very, very important as I began, as I turned to thinking about the mobile phone. When I was in India doing all of this work on uh, Untimely Bollywood, what I was sort of what I was interested in was how um, cinema was going from kind of a an alone standing, a sort of you know a a, a completely autonomous, a largely autonomous kind of media culture to something that was much more distributed. So that um, mm-hmm. you know, I was looking at the the marketing of of films and and 
the long and longer sort of train of uh, of uh, of how these films became um, a, a a marketing um, part of the, a, a marketing campaign, and so then looking at how the radio was involved, and of course the radio had been involved for quite some time, but um, how the, then different ways in which the mobile phone became linked to marketing a film. Well, that. That that sort of initial introduction to how uh, increasingly um, from the er, from the early two thousands um, the the cinema people the film people all over India were using the mobile phone to um, to market and then also to distribute and uh, and to kind of get sort of the the worms the Bollywood worm earworms or you know hearing worms into people's ears so you have to hear that song that that little snippet of the song again and again that kind of thing that happened uh, through a, a distributed network of media that uh, became an important way of, of understanding what then subsequently happened to the mobile phone and so those kinds of interests the question of technology the question of habituation um, the question of power, the question of globalization and consumption, all of those things I took forward um, into my research on mobile phones, uh, which I began really in 2007 around, um, and then uh, was able to you know, devote some concentrated time in 2009. Um, so the sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm, and, and the other sort of major thing I took from, uh, and I, I guess this is obvious when, if people have a sense of the book, if you just look at the um, table of contents, the other big thing here is the question of affect. Mm -hmm. What is affect? What is an affective atmosphere? What are affective disp dispositions? What are affective dynamics in relationship between technology and habit? What is affect? Now, of course, I understand affect is not reducible to emotion. I, mm -hmm. I, I, understood, I understand affect, uh, and again, this comes out of a particular philosophical and political conversation happening right now, but happening for many, many years, and that is that uh, affect is the capacity to affect and be affected, the, 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 the capacity to sense and, and, act, and, and act in the world. That uh, is, again, to understand the body as a, a, in an open ecological uh, context, in an open ecological structure, one might say. So affect to me became a very important organizing framework, and, and that carried, again, through uh, uh, untimely Bollywood to Jugar time. Um, and, and what does the term affect allow me to do? It allows me, and of course the people who I've been in conversation with, and we'll turn to that in a second, but um, it's a framing that foregrounds a body irreducible to consciousness. It foregrounds the dynamism of a body irreducible to language. Um, now, notice I'm not saying to the exclusion of consciousness or to the exclusion of language. I'm not, I'm not at all making a claim, and some people I, I understand do make this claim, but I'm not making this claim, that affect is somehow um, better than or more, or, or more interesting than language or, uh, or, or, or the notion of consciousness. It's simply to situate affect in a broader field than either consciousness or language, a broader field of relations um, and a broader field of relations, which are not controlled and not reducible right. to language or consciousness. So that's, that's the sort of uh, important foregrounding uh, of, of affect that I was able to, that I I've carried through into uh, Jugar time. Um, the other constant or the other sort of, constant interest was the relationship of technology to, to gender. Mm -hmm. In what ways were different um, media technologies gendered or, and what, in what way was gender as a form of power operating through different technologies? Um, and that, that again carried through from thinking about the single screen talkie as a gendered space mm -hmm. to 
to understanding the mobile phone as an intimate device that could potentially disrupt patriarchal strictures of the house. Um, so that all of that became interesting. It was really the new book opened up another aspect of, uh, well, an aspect that I, I think I had recognized, but an aspect that became sharper for me. And that is the way in which um, people work around obstacles in India, the way they mm -hmm. do not let uh, a particular, let's say, intellectual property, uh, do not let, let's say, a particular caste stricture stop them, even though mm -hmm. these 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 are, might be in very many ways debilitating uh, forms of control um, that people and and I here I'm specifically thinking about subaltern communities, communities of mm -hmm. uh, of struggle against uh, uh, constituted and dominant powers, um, that resistance go keeps going. And that sort of prior field of recalcitrance, that prior field of resistance was also what made me think that there's something about Jugar that mm -hmm. uh, gets at some of these uh, historical and and um, and, and very material set of uh, dynamics of power. Um, does that, is that good with that? Yeah, I don't know. Does that's, that... great. that's great. Thank you. Okay. This is uh, actually a really good introduction to also the, the central term of the book, uh, Jugard. And, uh, you know, we, I think we got a sense of how the book uh, thinks about it and thinks through it. Um, uh, so thank you for that. Uh, but, you know, I, I would just love to sort of quickly get into the chapters, which are just um, so full of very rich ethnographic work. So in chapter one, you draw on uh, ethnographic work on mobile phone ecologies in Mumbai and Delhi uh, that I think you and your team conducted between 2009 and 17. And you posit that phone companies have adapted Jugaad to their business model, but also have tried to orient customers and employees to a new sensorium. Um, I would invite you to tell our listeners a little more about what this means um, and the implications of this corporate capture of Jugaad as innovation. Mm. Yes. Um, so Jugaad just really, really briefly means work around. It means, uh, you know, kind of, it could be also understood as a kind of a trick, a kind of a con. It, many, many people use it as a as a way of, uh, foregrounding their, um, you know, their authenticity. Oh, you're a Jugaru. You know how the ins and outs of a particular, um, you know, a particular arena of power, and so you need you you know how to negotiate that arena and do what you need to do. So you're a Jugaru. Well, mm -hmm. so what is the so over the past I'd say 10, 15 years, uh, Jugar has become an object of a business and management um, scholarship. And and what is the capture here? The capture is that Jugar is thought of as uh, as frugal innovation. That is mm -hmm. innovation that poor people do basically. And uh, the innovation that poor poor people do, of course, for business and management types means that that's something that they can learn from and and create monopoly, um, monopoly capital from, um, monopoly value from. So, so Mark, so, so Jugar can also be thought of as a marketing gimmick gimmick. Um, and it has been in, in various, various guises been used as a marketing gimmick gimmick. And what does this mean? It, it means, oh, Jugar is the next big thing. And Jugar is a way of sort of producing the next big thing all the time. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a way of thinking about how the new is, is, is new, is newly fetishized in India today. The other thing about Jugar, of course, is that it's ostensibly a, 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 a Indian word, although it's very difficult to find the etymology of this word. Um, and some people claim that it comes from Punjabi. Some people claim that it comes from Hindi. It's also used in Bengali, Jogar, and so on and so forth. But the term, if you think about it for a moment, sounds strikingly like a Portuguese word, which, mean, which is hugar, which means what? It means to play. So it, mm. it and and of course the term 
play or the concept of play is very alive in Jugar practice. To be able to play with the conditions that history or, 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 or politics or a particular caste domination has bequeathed you and to play with them and then play with mm-hmm. those conditions and rearrange them and rearrange them in a way that allows you to work around them. Well, that is a kind of, I would almost go so far as to say it's a revolutionary kind of play. Well, mm-hmm. all of that also produces the idea that Jugar, I mean, and notice the, the irony here that a, that a possibly, possibly I'm not, I'm not making any absolute claims to this because I'm not an etymologist, but I've done some sort of background research on this. And that is that, uh, you know, Jugar could possibly very well come from the Portuguese language, not Indian at all. But today, Jugar mm-hmm. in a variety of contexts is used as a sign of Indian authenticity. So there's a deep irony mm-hmm. there. There's a deep irony that, you know, in, in my old guise as post-colonial critic, I would have, you know, just gotten very excited about i don't so much anymore but um indian authenticity is also something that's at work in the culture of jugar and its marketing um and its marketing um i think of jugar as subjective form what is what is the relationship of uh jugar to the sort of the the way in which subjectivity is formed under uh, under neoliberal capital in India today. Um, well, what does that mean? It's it's a foregrounding of what innovation. It's a foregrounding of entrepreneurship. It's a foregrounding of competitive individualism. All of these, uh, you know, quote unquote, value added uh, ways in which uh, people turn themselves into human capital. To paraphrase both Marx and Foucault here, um, these are an important, they're, they're important dynamics uh, within uh, the the uptake of Jugar in 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 business and management. So I'm I'm very interested in in and and very critical of thinking about Jugar in these ways, uh, because of course that is a it's an abstraction of Jugar. Once again, a kind of g- making Jugar into a gimmick for you know a venture capitalist or something like that. Um, I also encountered Jugar in my research as a kind of an elite style of, you know, an elite style of, yeah, I can get it done. Don't you worry. Mm-hmm. And the, this is the kind of interviews that I was having with value added uh, mobile phone people in, uh, in Noida. And they would, you know, every other word was Jugar um, and who's the mm-hmm. Jugaru today and so on and so forth. This is in the, in the mid 2000, uh, mid 2010s and so on and so forth. And, um, it might not be so used nowadays as much, but it was also for me a, a way in which there was an elite appropriation of Jugar. And that elite mm-hmm. appropriation of Jugar was a kind of like, hey, I'm authentic and I don't I don't have to follow what all the managers do because I've got my own style and I'm going to create value that way. So that was also happening in the kind of mobile phone cultures that I was, uh, that I was researching. Um, the other thing about Jugar is that a Jugar is when someone's performing a Jugar, it's to it's for a particular use. It's not to turn that Jugar into money or or a kind of a way of getting something else. It's it's in fact something that's immediately and directly useful. Well, the uptake of the uptake of Jugar in in uh, business management is 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 an abstraction of that use into something that can be exchanged for something else. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's another way in which use value is, is transformed into exchange value uh, today. And Jugar is, is that weird combination of use and exchange value, which is, I think, quite volatile. Um, the last thing I would say here is that in terms of um, the corporate capture of Jugar is the question of intellectual property. Um, if you consider what's happened in India since 1995, and I, I use that you know that 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 year very important is an important year, and that's the year of of trips of um, the you know the the World Trade Organization intellectual property regime uh, known as trips, mm-hmm. and that of course started a long battle in India of of what is intellectual property 
why should we respect it? How can we respect it and, and still be within the global community uh, when we are also coming to terms with the fact that uh, 90% of our economy is not in the formal sector? Well, Jugar can also be then uh, used as a way of developing or generating intellectual property. Um, and again, this is something to be very critical of. Um, if, if that's the case, that Jugar can be linked to intellectual property, can be linked to that kind of capture of, of, of quote-unquote innovation and turning it into um, exclusive monopoly rights, um, it can also be the obverse. Jugar can also be part of a commoning. And this is mm-hmm. something that I, I w- was very interested in thinking about how Jugar and collective practices of Jugar uh, are uh, mechanisms of commoning resources, but also commoning knowledge, the knowledge of the Jugar itself. So these are these are all very, I think, important uh, sort of dynamics that I tried to keep in play as much as I could in, in the book. Great. Yeah, thank you. That was, um, I think, very helpful, um, especially to think about the corporate capture of Jugar and its sort of, um, its etymology and all of the um, contradictions and contingencies within. Um, so in chapter two, you focus on what you call uh, diagramming India's emergent sensorium in the forms of affect, habit, and control in business process outsourcing. Um, and you shed light on a new ontology of sensation in the domain of digital culture in India. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your method and also why thinking about this emergent sensorium is key to understanding neoliberalism in India today? Mm. Great. Um, I mean, this this phrase, and I think I probably overuse it in the book, but it's a, it's an important one, an ontology of sensation, an ecology of sensation. I, I, I use this word all the time in the book, and I, I, I've begun to sort of uh, understand a little bit better, subsequent to its publication, why it's important to me. And that is, it is an important way of questioning an objective illusion of thought. The objective mm-hmm. illusion of thought is that we take product over process. We are constantly confusing. And this is we, I mean, this happens in, 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 in many, many, many different cultures differently, but there is a focus on product over process. So in, in the domain of uh, the digital, in the domain of uh, digital culture in India, these products, of course, are everywhere. They're multiplying these little uh, electronic gadgets, the, 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 the astro- astrological uh, reading that you got on your WhatsApp. These are all products that are up for all sorts of different kinds of sharing and different kinds of modes of co- consumption. But for me, the question of what processes enabled those products to circulate as commodities, that to me was both a question of, of you know, returning to Marx, but it was also mm-hmm. a question of uh, understanding the body. Um, how is the body in a mobile phone ecology um, activated? Um, how is it sort of tapped and, and, and made a kind of uh, a, a, zone, a, a zone of interconnection, a, a, an interzone. Uh, the body becomes an interzone when the, 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 in, the devices that we are so net with, uh, intimately uh, connected to, these, these kinds of interzones, the body becoming an interzone, that to me is a way of understanding how uh, the material flows of media, but also uh, forms of monetization and value creation, uh, and of course the specific embodied habits of the phone itself uh, form an entire ontology or or uh, a mode of being and becoming. And that to me was well, I needed a, I needed a method to understand that. And of course there was uh, quite a few historical precedents for me to for, to for me to draw on here. I mean, I, I also would, would want to say that I was. I was explicit in being critical of uh, of the representational, the overwhelming representational frameworks um, that uh, continue uh, to dominate cultural criticism today. So for me, the turn to affect was also a critique of uh, of, of the representational. Um, I, in 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 Jugar time, I come up with this fr- this phrase, which you know 
is is okay. I'm, I can't say that I, I want to brand it or anything, but it's it's a it's a phrase called affective ethnography, and that's that's the method um, if you want to give a phrase to it. But there are many ways to describe it. What it, what does it mean? It 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 tries to understand uh, potentiality. And it tries to understand possibility without uh, reducing them to each other. That the potential is not the possible. The possible is only is already given by the actual. But 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 the potential, what is potential in a given field, is much broader than that. So affective ethnographies would be able to pose uh, potential uh, that are emergent potentials that are would be emergent uh, given uh, a a. A rejigged or new set of interactions in a particular ecology, and and what are these interactions? These interactions are based in capacities, the body's capacity to affect and be affected. A mobile phone's affordances to be able to get get a get a signal and to be able to uh, generate information in in a in a way that can be consumed, but also in a way that can be data mined. Um, the other aspect of affective ethnographies was also bringing the process back to all of these pro- uh, products. And so to understand how a, f- a mobile phone becomes part of a, a part of a city's metabolic processes uh, and becomes a, a, a technology of dynamic feedbacks. Um, that, I think, all of these sort of elements, and of course the other Couple, couple of important elements here is that that we're looking it in, in a we're looking at structures we're looking at infrastructures that have multiple causalities and mutual causalities these are these are things that don't have just a simple cause and effect relationship but in fact are uh, have a distributed agency that needs to be understood in its complexities so that that is another way of understanding sensorium the word sensorium of course it, it comes from Walter Benjamin and many others, um, but um, that term uh, is also a way in which, um, for Benjamin, uh, he was able to understand the rise of fascism. And for me, it it certainly also is is linked to the understanding of the rise of a particular kind of Hindutva power in India. But this the term sensorium is also for me a place of um, of revolutionary potentiality. Uh, and that to me is again a very important thing. Um, the you know another way of understanding um, affective ethnographies is uh, by this phrase embodied ethics, and embodied ethics is 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 another way of understanding how um, one might cons- uh, construct an affective ethnography. Um, the shift from representation to something else. Well, what is that something else? I I make I make you know. <laughs> I make some uh, um, some claims in uh, in in Jugar time, and I'm I'm not sure if they're they're completely. Anyways, um, and the claims are that uh, that what I'm involved in, what I think is necessary to move out of representational captures or representational reductions of, for instance, affect, is that we produce uh, ethical diagrams. We produce. Mm-hmm. We engage in a diagrammatic thought, and we 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 engage in a diagrammatic practice. Uh, and what is what does that mean? Well, you can understand the word diagram as in as in the phrase uh, a, a reverse diagramming engineer. Uh, sorry, sorry, an engineering diagram. Mm-hmm. Through an engineering diagram, one can reverse products into a variety of different processes. Um, and and that to me is is a way of understanding, in the words of Bergson, how we should act as people of thought and think as people of action. Um, and, and that sort of, um, you know, I think celebration or I would, yeah, I guess a kind of celebration, or I hope not, a, not an uncritical celebration, but, a, but a, an argument around the diagrammatic is important in the book. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. Thanks. And, uh, in- Moving on, in uh, chapter three, the chapter that I must admit I enjoyed the most, um, you focus on the affective and metabolic dimensions of women's domestic labor in the connected smart city. And uh, in doing so, you think through uh, Partha Chatterjee's arguments vis-a-vis the nationalist resolution of the women's question. Um, and this chapter then presents a biopolitical analysis of subaltern media practices 
and uh, the feminist critique of social reproduction in the context of post-colonial displacements in urban India. I would love it if you could share with our listeners how the Jugaad framework, if I may use that phrase, deepens our understanding of urban metabolism of technology, kinship and care in in the context of gender relations in urbanizing cities. Mm. Um well, I'm glad you liked that chapter because it was uh, it was it was also a joy for me to write and and to think about and to to think with um, people I'm in solidarity with um, uh, people struggling around, for instance, the construction of uh, of of social space in in urban cities and in, in urban areas, and and that is the the domination of men uh, of right. uh, of the urban space, and this is of course. Uh, the work done by Shilpa Padke and her colleagues, um, and and that work is called Why Loiter was an a, an attempt in a collective mode to take social space back. Um, well, what is an urban metabol- m- metabolics? An urban metabolics is once again to foreground the question of what are the processes that constitute a neoliberal city. Uh, mm-hmm. One of those processes that I focused on was the sort of transformation of urban space through uh, through through big data, and and what big data was offering uh, development, urban development in India, um, and and how that smart city framework was be was was being marketed by uh, the, the Modi gov- Modi government and others, uh, but. You know the idea that we'll have a hundred smart cities uh, by 2014 or something, something like that. I mean, you know, the the claims are huge. The claims are of modernity themselves, and and of course, in the book, I make it a very sort of strong point to to point out the ways in which the smart city paradigm is in fact an elite-driven uh, form of urban transformation. Um. But then the question of care is is interesting to me. Um, this term care is I, has been, um, you know, I think radically re- repositioned in the work of, for instance, Sylvia Federici, uh, Camille Barbagallo, the people who are act, uh, you know, the the, the feminist, uh, the socialist feminists who are, who are taking uh, this question of the social reproduction of the home and understanding it through um, the unpaid labor of women uh, and how the, the commodity labor power is, is reproduced in very particular ways and how that reproduction involves um, people in, in a capitalist and a non-capitalist economy at the same time. And so that the domestic sphere is uh, both inside and outside of capital. Um, that to me became a very important side of struggle, an important place to to pose critically uh, the question of uh, how uh, life hacking or jugar, another way of under, another phrase of understanding jugar is life hacking, how life hacking um, uh, was important to, for instance, how recipes are shared, how a, uh, how a dish is, is experimented with, how particular sources of, of sustenance are, are in fact sourced. So um, in other words, what kinds of workarounds are necessary for different households to reproduce themselves? And, and the households that I, I, wor- I sort of was focused on and, and was able and able to focus on through the, the work of my co-researchers uh, working in Delhi and Bombay, um, uh, Shiva Rachna and, uh, and Anisha, I mean, these, these were, they're ma- you know, they're amazing scholars who, researchers who are helping me um, do, do this research and, and enabled sort of conversations to happen that I wouldn't necessarily have ha- been able to have myself. But that, those conversations had to do with, for instance, how Dalit, um, um, uh, domestic workers were helping to reproduce the middle class upper caste home precisely through Jugar ecologies. Um, and that kind of complicity of the quote unquote formal economy home, the upper caste, upper class home, the complicity of the, that 
ecology, that particular formation with the subaltern Dalit ecologies necessary to to really, quote unquote, get their desires uh, fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think, was an important part of thinking about care and kinship and how it was being contested and, and in some ways also ramified. Um, So the home, again, became a place where I wanted to go from product to process. I wanted to uh, um, put the home into its dynamic motion and to to do that at the level of of a concept or the level of of analysis that would allow us to diagram those relations of power so that we might change them, uh, so that people would change them and people are changing them quite actively. Um, so in that sense, care or, or what we might call a feminist care ethics is also a kind of action on the environment. Uh, and, and it is the, the commitment or the, the affirmation of creating environments for action. And it's also to, to, to make the, the strong argument that, that in some fundamental way, care is outside of capital. That, uh, that care and capital do not map onto each other in, 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 in fundamental ways. Um, the sort of what is happening to the domestic, so then I, I just repeat this again, 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 when I, when I have this conversation is that the mobile phone actually causes men to be anxious. The mobile phone in the home causes male anxiety. And it causes male anxiety because there's a securitization of the home that is threatened by the mobile mm-hmm. phone, by, by women in, their, in the home uh, using the mobile phone in ways that oh, could not be controlled uh, by the men in the home. And this is often, this is usually re- the reason why all the women in, cert- in a certain kind of middle class home, uh, all, the, all the women share one phone and the men e- ha- mm-hmm. each have their own phones. Um, those kinds of strictures, those kind of patriarchal um, uh, uh, structures of, of domination that I that I think are uh, still quite um, strong, operative in some ways, and in some places getting stronger. Some some places they're becoming more uh, open for contestation. Well, all of those dynamics that to me also are bound up with questions of class and caste. That to me was a way, what, what was it was a site through which a, a, a method of considering the meta, metabolic, meta, metabolics uh, of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of urban, urban power, that, that was a way of bringing the process back to the product of the home. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because my next question was actually uh, about these sorts of hybrid practices such as Jugaad um, that suggest a prior field of subaltern recalcitrance and invention in the practices of contemporary informal sectors in like smart cities in India. And uh, I particularly enjoyed how you uh, developed this idea of the metabolic plasticity of um, uh, in terms of informal urban economies in smart cities. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what thinking about plasticity uh, alongside activism practice um, can tell us about the contemporary Indian city? Mm. I think the term the metabolic is important because, I mean, the, the danger here is that we're going to reduce the city to a body. There is a danger. Mm-hmm. So there's, and there's, a, there's always a danger with all metaphors. Um, as, as one of my favorite philosophers once said, we use metaphors when we forget how to act. So, but that, with all of that caveat being, being said, I think the term meta- metabolic and metabolism is, is a way of, of understanding, again, how things are interconnected, how processes are interconnected, how questions of power grid, how questions of water um, distribution, um, how traffic, how uh, certain air flows uh, and of course, how policy, um, all of them are, in, are, are, are linked, are linked politically, they're linked um, through the administration of a city. And so it, it makes sense to begin to understand 
the city as something that is not only for humans and not only created by humans. This is another way of, of uh, and I think in, throughout the book, I'm also uh, quite aware that uh, one of the things that is coming to the end, coming to an end, is the anthropocentrism of of much mm-hmm. of anthropological thought and and so on and so forth, and contemporary certainly geographical thought and, and cultural criticism, and that is that um, the city is is uh, more than human, and and its metabolisms cannot be its 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 processes of reproduction, its processes of of construction cannot be reduced to human needs. Uh, And so that that we as humans must have a little bit more humility and understand that what we've, what we've uh, quote unquote created, in fact, has become bigger than us. And that um, has become involved in, uh, in ecologies that are not of our creation and not directly of our control. So that, so the metabolic becomes an important way in which we can reconnect with, uh, with, non-human processes. So that's one thing. And, and then the question of, the, of plasticity. Well, what, what is this? Of course, the term plastic has, has bad connotations today, and of course, for good reason. But the term plasticity, uh, which, the, which the philosopher, German philosopher Hegel used and has been recently taken up by um, the, uh, the philosopher, the French philosopher, uh, Catherine Malibu, uh, and who's used this term to think about the brain's plasticity. And, to, and when you think about the brain's plasticity, plasticity, what you're thinking about is the brain's potentiality for change. And so the term plasticity, when applied to the ur- urban space, is, is also this kind of uh, encouragement or, or, or a tendency to try to think about um, various uh, dynamics, tendency to change in a city. Uh, and in that sense, you can see that plasticity, or you could understand plasticity as a way of grappling with how a, a city is differentiating from itself. That its plasticity, mm-hmm. its realm of potentiality is in fact that realm where it is self-differentiating. Uh, it's, it's difference differentiating, one might put it. Um, so that's in that sense, plasticity is a way of thinking about the conditions of how it's uh, thinking about the conditions through which a city transforms. Um, so, for those reasons, I thought the term metabolic plasticity a very useful one. Um, it foregrounds processes of differentiation. That's the other thing that the, that difference becomes not a problem, but actually a, a um, an affirmative dynamic happening in the city. Um, happening through its uh, its heterogeneous um, metabolism, um, it also foregrounds questions as, of the strategies and tactics of subaltern struggle. Because if a city is changing, it means its people are changing, involved in the change, involved in new habituations, and of course in the contestation of cities that are becoming increasingly privatized and uh, turned into elite playgrounds. Well, those are all places. Of uh, of the of strategies and tra- uh, of and tactics of subaltern struggle, and that is also something I wanted to foreground. Um, and I guess the last thing um, that I would say about the term metabolic plasticity is that it allows us th- allows a thinking of emergent properties. And what is an emergent property? It's a property that emerges from the interaction of uh, within a multiplicity. So the city is thought of as a multiplicity, but when new elements enter into that multiplicity and start interacting with other elements of that multiplicity, let's say a mobile phone interacting with, let's say, the, uh, the social practice of Jugar, suddenly you have an emergent property operating. Um, and that emergent property is, 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 in fact, the conjunction between these different dynamics. So I think that was very important for me to also think about uh, something that cannot be predicted beforehand, right. and and that also was an important way of getting out of the representational framework and thinking specifically about how uh, things emerge in their dynamism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is also a, a great juncture at which to introduce a question that you had sort of alluded to in previous answers, but um, 
you know, to, to use your own words in the form of a question, how does Jugaad contribute to the ongoing struggles for non-capitalist, anti-capitalist economic equality and democratic social emancipation in India and indeed globally? In fact, does it contribute to this at all? What are the revolutionary potentialities of Jugaad? Mm. Well, um, this is this is the question I kind of end with in the book. And I think today I think I have some better clarity around it. And and what and what it why is that? I think I I think today I understand that Jugar in itself has no politics. There's no mm-hmm. intrinsic politics to Jugar. Jugar can be used from Everything from, um, well, Jugar is used in misogynistic practices of terrorizing women with with a mobile phone. It's also Mm -hmm. used uh, by Dalit communities to work around caste oppression in in a variety of contexts in the city. So in that sense, Jugar as such has no politics. It has no, no already given politics. That having been said, I think there are, dynamics and tendencies in Jugar culture that are profoundly troubling to the constituted modes of power in India today. And this is why Mm -hmm. I wrote the book that not to necessarily resuscitate or save Jugar from from the baddies who might try to uh, capture it, but to suggest that that, um, different movements uh, for social change, for emancipatory um, transformation can understand aspects of Jugar as as a part of their strategy and tactics, that Jugar can be one strategy. It could be something that enables a kind of defetishization of intellectual property, a kind of uh, uh, putting into historical context the formation of caste power and class power and so on and so forth, a way in which to not take so seriously, not to take seriously the, the patriarchal uh, strictures around the home, all of these ways, and of course, it comes with dangers. It comes for danger for danger. Uh, comes with dangers for women, for for people who are uh, lower caste when they speak out, when they act in these ways. Because to get ca- caught out doing a jugar is also a very dangerous thing. Um, so mm-hmm. all of these things come with dangers, and I'm not un- trying to underplay them. But what I'm interested in thinking about it are the, the ways in which Jugar can be uh, a useful strategy or useful tactic. I mean, I, I think I often think of it this, this way as well, in which that writing this book was a way of me getting around a business school. But <laughs> writing the book in a way that was in itself not Jugar was also important. Mm-hmm. That research cannot be conducted as workarounds usually. I mean, there are aspects of research that can, but generally what you what one wants is, 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 and I still, I guess I'm an old fashioned Marxist in this way. I believe in rigorous criticism and I believe in rigorous mm-hmm. critique and, and one cannot simply willy nilly apply Jugar in, in all contexts and, and, and in various different practices and say, Hey, we're, we're all Jugars. That's not at all where I was going with this book. I wanted to sort of, uh, begin to think critically, uh, you know, philosophically and politically about, uh, about this practice. And I, I think I was mildly successful in that. I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that this practice can stop being a fetish and we can, instead of turning Jugar into a product, we can understand mm-hmm. Jugar in terms of its processes. And those processes yeah. to me are involved in, in revolutionary becoming. That's, I think that's like a perfect note uh, on which to end this discussion of your wonderful book. Um, but before we let you go, I'm sure we would all love to know, uh, what are you working on currently and what might we expect to see from you in the near future? Right. Um, so I have, I have been for the past about, about two years looking at the, the problem of attention. Attention. Mm-hmm. And how attention is being mobilized through a variety of um, media platforms, uh, how platform capitalism itself is basically rooted in, in the modulation of attention. And I'm, I'm interested in it in terms of the relationship of attention to creativity. When is it 
Uh, and so I'm working in the creative industries, uh, critical creative industry studies. And, and one of the things that I keep coming across uh, here in, in the UK is um, uh, strategies to maximize uh, creative potential in workplaces. Um, well, how are people going about doing that? They're, they're saying, well, we need to be mindful. And so, and of course, by mindful, they mean Eastern meditation. And by Eastern meditation, they have an Orientalist idea of, uh, of what it means mm-hmm. to meditate, what it means to do yoga and all of this, uh, all of this. Um, so I'm interested in, in a critique of that kind of mindfulness as, as labor discipline. So I'm thinking about mindfulness as it's sort of spilling out all over. And this is, and it's true in Ind- Indian corporates, right? And if you, you know, if you have uh, talked to an, a person in, in uh, an Indian corporate, I have, I have relatives who are uh, human resource managers there. And one of the major things that they're getting, they're trying to get employees to, uh, to practice is, uh, is forms of mindfulness. In other words, a new form of attention. So that, is very interesting to me, and I'm I'm going to pursue it. I think um, by uh, going at it through artistic practice. So I've I've been doing a lot of interviews with artists who um, have developed different routines through which they contemplate their own practice, contemplate the world, and in that contemplation, um, uh, find what they would call authentic creativity. So yeah, that's what the book is on. Uh, it's going to probably be some sort of uh, analysis of what's happening. For instance, and I'm 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 in conversation uh, with uh, several artists in Bombay and uh, artists mm-hmm. here in in London, and and to see what these different conditions of attention are. That sounds really interesting, and I can't wait to read it when. Um when writing from this project begins to emerge. Uh, thank you so much, Avid, for taking time out to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I had a really stimulating start to the morning, I'd say. <laughs> Great. Glad glad to have uh, been uh, in conversation with you, Sneha. Very, very much appreciate it. <laughs>